Hi, everyone. Welcome back to Chit Heads. My guest today is Bo Forbes. Bo is a global yogi, innovator, information gatherer, and paradigm bender who integrates the fields of yoga, mindfulness, science, psychology, movement studies, contemplative practice, and social justice. She is the founder of Embodied Awareness, an online education company whose mission is wellness through embodied education. Called a scholar, healer, and maverick by Yoga Therapy Today, Bo is a clinical psychologist, yoga instructor, mindfulness teacher, and movement educator. She also collaborates in research on embodiment, mood, and performance with Norman Farb, Sarah Lazar, and David Vago, who are fellows at the Mind and Life Institute. Bo recently collaborated on a think tank grant from Mind and Life on embodiment, contemplative practice, and equality, which focused on reducing implicit bias and prejudice. She is the founder of the One Body Collective, a nonprofit initiative housed within the Give Back Yoga Foundation. Its purpose is to collaborate and create new pedagogy in somatics, contemplative practice, and social justice. Bo received her bachelor's and master's degrees from the University of Chicago and her doctoral degree from the Illinois School of Professional Psychology. Her background includes training in biopsychology, stress management, mood disorders, sleep anomalies, eating and body image issues, and athletic performance. Bo brings her special method of embodiment training to professional sports teams, corporations, yoga instructors, mindfulness teachers, and healthcare professionals worldwide. She conducts teacher trainings and workshops internationally, including in the US, Canada, the UK, Europe, and the Middle East. She is on the advisory boards of the International Association of Yoga Therapists and the Give Back Yoga Foundation. She writes frequently for Yoga Journal, the International Journal of Yoga Therapy, Yoga International, and other leading magazines. She is the author of Yoga for Emotional Balance, which we'll talk a little bit about today. Uh, Yoga for Emotional Balance, Simple Practices to Help Relieve Anxiety and Depression. So with that esteemed bio, hello Bo, how are you? I'm great. Thank you so much for having me. I'm a huge admirer of your work, and um, I try to listen when I can. Oh, I really um, appreciate hearing that. Yeah. yeah. So, um, you know, you, we were mentioning just before we started the interview that um, this is actually the eighth anniversary, anniversary of you submitting in, was it the final manuscript of your book? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So looking, and you were you were sort of joking about being asked <laughs> questions about it and having to sort of uh, look back at the text again. Do you feel like you know looking back eight years? How do you feel about that project? Do you do you feel like you would change anything at this point? Oh, that's such a great question. You know, in some ways, I I, ha- I have picked up the book from time to time, and I'll look at it, and I I don't know if anyone else has this experience, but I'll, I'll think like, who wrote this book? It's yeah. just, um, and uh. But I, I had a very intimate relationship with, I, I, I can say, every word in the book. So mm-hmm. in the final stage of editing, the uh, copy editor that my publisher had hired had a family illness and was unable to copy edit. So I ended up doing my own copy editing, which was a really phenomenal experience. So mm-hmm. I, I feel in some ways that like there was intention sort of embedded in everything. Um, but I will say that eight years on, yeah, I, I think in some ways for me, when I look at that book or, or um, sort of page through certain parts, I can see the inception of what I'm still doing today. So I think one of the, the really big um, 
focus areas of the book really had to do with the idea that the body is a vehicle for transformation mm -hmm. and also that our narratives, the kind of um, not our own stories in a sort of autobiographical sense, but the, the stories we tell about our experiences often run counter uh, to the intelligence of the body. And it was shortly after the book was published that some of the, the neuroscience on those patterns of thinking and our narratives came out. Mm. So I think it was coming, it was happening at a really exciting time where uh, some of the things that I have observed for years in the students I worked with and in clients that I had seen back when I had a psychotherapy practice were starting to um, kind of germinate in, in the world uh, outside. But yeah, so in some ways, it's, it is funny to think like, oh, this is, um, this is so long ago. And yet I, I definitely stand by I, what, what I wrote and what I was processing at the time. And in particular about sort of, I think the book really is in its own way, a kind of uh, a primer for body-based contemplative practice. Mm. So it is really meditative. And I feel like we can have that richness of meditation occurring inside the body, in the field of the body, if yeah. that makes sense. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, I think it's it's interesting. And, and I'd like to go back and just situate the text a little bit for, for everyone. And then we can talk a little bit about the way that your work has evolved, because I know you're doing a lot of work focus more on social justice now. And so I think it'll be interesting to see, you know, hear you talk about the way in which this work translates into the work that you've, you know, evolved into. Um, but, you know, just as a way of kind of introducing the book for those aren't, that aren't familiar with it, which even though is eight years old, is still, you know, a profoundly refreshing book in a lot of ways. And one of the ways that I really, one of the things I appreciated about what you point out is you you say in, in the book, you know, you don't need to understand or even process your thoughts or emotions in order to experience dramatic shifts in mood, behavior, and well-being, which is obviously a radical statement with regards to the psychotherapeutic status quo, which, you know, is grounded in, you know, forms of talk therapy. And you say that it, it, it or I noticed that it hinges on your observation that conceptual insight is not required for change. This is also your quote. Conceptual insight is not required for change. In some cases, it actually interferes with it. So I wanted to hear a little bit more about that specifically. When do you think, um, from your you know perspective of many years in psychotherapeutic practice, when does talk therapy actually contribute to issues or inhibit the healing process? Yeah, so I, I think that's a wonderful question. And part of the challenge is that in psychotherapy, we really train in the art of sort of um, linking what's happening in someone's present to what has happened in their past, yeah. um, kind of connecting it, making meaning from it in a way that can be really healing. And yet doing that in many ways is sort of activating a network um, in the brain known as our default mode network, that sort of um, part of us that um, engages in selfing, engages in meaning making, and is, often has a sense of negative self-referential aspect. So I feel in some ways those connections can be very liberating, at least in the beginning. And then there comes a time in which um, maybe we, we kind of cross the threshold into repetition compulsion. And so um, the job, I think, of a psychotherapist is to really have a holistic understanding of when talk can be helpful and when not. 
And I think there are other issues at play as well. So one of those being that when we're deeply in our bodies, when we're present with what's happening in our bodies, that is a really different state from our conceptual sort of sense of what's happening in the body. And to some extent, I think most humans alive today are um, are working with connecting more to our bodies. It's really yeah. um, body intelligence, body connection is really marginalized in modern culture. So um, it's tempting, I think, to sort of utilize the mind to enter the body and then kind of... Um, describe experience or order experience in the body. And in in some ways, I think the most powerful experiences that happen in the body are really nonverbal. Yeah. Not to say that they don't have any words, but they're images, sensations. Um, I think of it sometimes as these origami shapes that sort of you pull one end and sort of a whole another shape arises and you might you might pull or tuck that end and something else comes. So it's almost like, um, to me, it's like a Cyrillic alphabet of images and sensations um, kind of dancing on the inside. So it's not to say that you could never describe, because, because we do, but I think um, there is a way in which allowing the body to lead that experience has an element of healing that is so profound and, um, and, and so transformational um, but but also somewhat uncomfortable if we're used to conceptualizing. Yeah. So does this connect to the idea in your book that we can give our power away to our stories? Yeah, I, I think it does. Um, it, it is such a, a really well-worn samskara, you know. So okay. say, for example, you know, we're having a little bit of technical stuff going on today just between us, and I could say, you know, nothing ever works out for me. It's always going to be difficult. Right. Why is this happening today? That's a really normal human response. Response, And I think to some extent, it's a way that we bond with one another socially around sharing those stories. And yet I'm also priming the pathways in my mind and brain, but also in my body that have that tendency to interpret experience in that way. Mm. Um, so yeah, I think, I think, it is a both and, but um, really important to be careful about how our narratives can also shape uh, future experience right. as well. I think and what I hear you saying a little bit, especially about the talk therapy versus kind of a bodied centered, um, you had that beautiful expression of the Cyrillic alphabet. Um, so th is, it, is it is partly the underlying kind of assumption that you know, if I understand the logic behind what has happened to me, that, that somehow an understanding of that, you know, linear logic, according to some particular narrative is going to be liberating. Is that part of the, the assumption that that we're working with in some modes of psychotherapy? Yes, and I think that can be really correct. So having a framework in which to locate our experience, and then having, I think, sort of healing narrative around it, um, and, and even narrative that en encompasses and makes space for the painful things. So this is not to say that we should never narrate or that we can't sort of acknowledge the pain that we're feeling. That's really important. Um, I think really making conscious choice about how we do that, how frequently we do that, who we do that with, um, 
and and then e- even looking at what we're creating when we do that. And and I and I I want to be really careful here because I think people can very easily feel that or understand that to be like okay, you know, narratives are bad. We need to get rid of all narratives and yeah. only honor the body. Um, and and that's that's not the case. But I think the narrative or conceptual insight as driving our healing is also not the case. So um, it, it, at least for me, in my opinion, and I realize that is your, your saying tr- truthfully, accurately, that that is a departure, um, not only from modern understandings in psychotherapy, but also contemplative practice, mm-hmm. where the mind is seen as the vehicle through which we um, create change, and that if we train our minds, we'll change our brains and bodies. Yeah. Um, and that is, that is a really prevalent belief out there right now. I like what you um, pointed out just a moment ago, because it it sort of touched on something I wanted to highlight about your work as well, which is that, um, you know, oftentimes you hear, I feel like in the yoga community, or, you know, in in this kind of contemplative community, this denigration of the intellect, or sort of this hard distinction between the narrative side and the felt emotional side, to the point where, you know, the intellect is often, there's almost, there's almost like an anti-intellectualism embedded in this sort of privileging of the affective, where, you know, what I feel like you're um, pointing out is that, you know, the right use of the intellect or a skillful, more nuanced use of its faculties, it, you know, might be something that we could call affective reasoning. So it sort of bypasses this crude distinction um, between um between the you know the mind on the one hand versus the body on the other hand, and then of course reifying this old mind-body dualism that we've you know we've become so familiar with. <laughs> we do seem we slip into that in so many different ways, and I I'm not alone in that. Yeah, I I mean I love the way you've described that, and you know certainly when we relate this to emotional health and even social health, we can see that this this idea of cognitive reappraisal, a kind of um, perspective taking. Um, a sense of being able to uh, observe our experience while also experiencing, um, that, that is very important. I think that's part of why we practice, not just to um, find another way to privilege a certain kind of intelligence, but to, um, to create a kind of um, a musicality between the two and, and um, less serrated edges, I guess you could say, in between these forms of intelligence. Yeah. So how does this then connect to, um, I loved this, you said clients need, your clients need practice sometimes more than they need to process, which I thought was a really nice um, uh, way of putting it. So how does that, what we're talking about connect to, you know, practicing versus processing? Sure. So I, I love the distinction that you're making between practicing and processing. And um, I think if we give that some granularity um, so that we're not um, juxtaposing them too much, I think yeah. there are times when um, to process something can be itself contemplative practice. Um, and then there are also times when um, practice, whether we're talking about uh, meditative practice or movement practice, can be a means of processing. Yeah. And then I, I think just taking care with, um, I, I do sometimes hear people say, and I have felt myself, oh, I'm, I'm going to move now so that I can release what I was experiencing, or I'm just going to let it work through me. 
And um, that's not necessarily, I think, a way of entering our states. And so I, I think one of the reasons we do practice, whether it's, you know, um, meditative practice or whether we're doing something that we would consider more body-based, is that we're, we're going toward rather than moving away from. And the same is true of processing. And I, there are brilliant teachers that do body-based psychotherapeutic um, you know, modalities, and there are body-based practices that, do, you know, that allow for us to sort of to note and watch and observe and sense. Um, but having ways, I, I guess what, what really comes to mind here is that not making these modalities into binaries. Um, um, we, it's, gosh, it's hard not to do that. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah, so, um, you know, what I, what, I, what I hear you saying connects well with another thing that I really liked about uh, the book, which um, slaps up against this assumption by many people that, you know, if you're doing yoga, just by virtue of the fact that you're doing yoga, it's going to lead to healing. And you point out that yoga can be done in a variety of different ways, oftentimes in ways that are kind of, you know, um, re- you know, again, repeating the same sort of um, uh, repetition of anxiety and depression, which of course is the, the the central focus of the book is these issues of anxiety and depression. And so you end up, you know, um, uh, proposing restorative yoga more than other forms of yoga is really this place where we start to... Um, peel back these more problematic repetitions. So can you, I know you don't like, you wouldn't say that, you know, vinyasa yoga or intense yoga is all bad, but can you talk a little bit about the way in which we bring our stuff to the mat and, and how we can start to maybe um, move in, in a way that's towards healing rather than, um, you know, reifying our habits? Sure. Um yeah, so I think repetition is, or repetition compulsion, or you could think of it as our, our samskaras, are in many ways very creative and very insidious um, because they do find a way into almost every aspect of our lives. And also because the, the things that we use or turn to to cope with really difficult feelings or to cope with um, emotions that are really intense or a lack of safety in the world those coping strategies uh, always arise out of utility. They, they are ingenious ways of, um, of you know, of navigating the world. Mm-hmm. I think in, in many ways when we start any kind of practice, and yoga, I think in some ways because it does uh, so often involve the body as well as the mind, um, can often bring some of our patterns right to the surface or right onto our mat, if you will. And um, in, in many ways, the practice can be utilized to sort of um, hold together or solidify or cohere these coping strategies. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, one of the ways that comes most easily to mind that that can happen is that if we're, say, very, um, very pitta or, or very prone um, to sort of anger or agitation or activity, and we choose a practice that matches that quality, like it's a very physically intense practice, it's not that we can never transform, I would not say that, but that we're choosing something that actually 
um, enhances or increases or um, empowers our, our coping strategies in a way that can perpetuate them. Mm-hmm. And um, what where I think um, really powerful places of healing can occur is um, that place where we begin to realize, and, and maybe this is a multitude of moments, that the ingenious coping strategies that we once used to kind of um, to defend ourselves to survive is a strategy that no longer works mm-hmm. um, and that we're able to choose other strategies. And, and to me, restorative yoga is very powerful um, as a means to doing that. It is something that we do in our bodies, but it's also a very meditative practice. Um, and in, in I taught restorative for 18 years. I, I just stopped a year ago, um, at, you know, teaching an organized restorative practice. But in that time, I feel that I was really instructed in the very mysterious and um, often miraculous ways that providing a vessel or a, a strong container for the practice can enable a lot of change to occur, um, and particularly in the way that we cope, um, and a lot of bolstering, too. And again, you know, part of the difficulty has always been that people see restorative yoga as just a, you know, a lying down or passive practice or mm-hmm. something that maybe we only do if we're really injured or sick or or tired or need need it. And I'm, I'm using air quotes there. Yeah. And um, and in many ways, again, that sort of highlighting this binary that we have between active practices and what we might say, uh, I'll use air quotes again, active, passive practices, um, and really looking at how, how can we stretch that into a continuum so that um, we allow for the power of dynamic rest, um, a practice that's really, really animated and very rich, and also at the same time restful. And I, I think that um, that can sometimes get lost in um, practicing only one style or in um, being devoted either to full-on passive rest, again, air quotes, or full-on active practice, also in air quotes. So just kind of noting how how our, our minds can be really colonized when it comes to the way that we approach um, these things, you know, as binaries, um, when really that's artificial. Yeah. Do you think that part of what contributes to this, um, you know, to some people's kind of aversion to restorative yoga as being, you know, too passive is um, partly due to kind of a conflation of yoga with forms of exercise. So people are seeking yoga as a means to physical fitness and then think that like the emotional benefits, which do generally come with any form of exercise, um, that that somehow it's going to come more with, you know, something dynamic and intense than it is with something that seems soft and gentle. Oh, yeah. I mean, that's such a great um, way of putting it. I think we are really sort of drawn to and entranced by the idea that strong sensation equals change. Mm -hmm. Um, And that's kind of a both a a patriarchal notion, I think, something that um, is sort of embedded into our culture. And then I think um, there are these really subtle forces um, that that sort of 
come into play or influence all of us that have to do with the body, how we view our bodies, um, what our collective mindset is about what makes a beautiful body or a yoga body. Mm-hmm. Um, this you, you, you've just brought up kind of a, uh, <laughs> a maelstrom of different beliefs that I think are bound into one. So that most often, I think almost anyone, if they had the choice between choosing something that seems active or might do more um, or do more for us physically and something that is passive, um, will be like there will be a process by which it it might be tempting to say, well, I'm gonna I'm gonna do the active, and then if I have time, I'll do something restful. Yeah, um, yeah, and you can connect, you connect that quite well to this, you know, the quick fix prescription that people who listen to this podcast will. Um, be familiar with. We talk about it all the time. Um, and, you know, this quick fix prescription that you point out is even connected to, you know, restorative yoga. So, you know, you'll see, you mentioned in the book that you will see these articles like five restorative poses to, you know, give you more emotional ease or something like that. So even within this, um, even within the gentle forms, there's this assumption that, you know, a very specific sequence or a simple, you know, um, five point series will bring about all of this um, profound change very quickly. Whereas you're pointing out that really it is, you know, it is a, a kind of a gradual, subtle process that 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 in in turn kind of ebbs away at these um, some scars rather than you know something that can just be harnessed in thirty minutes. Oh yeah, I, I mean. I do feel that the the prescriptive qualities that um, that are kind of embedded in our medical, you know, our modern medical paradigm, which is like to isolate different parts or organs as problems, and then to directly address symptoms, um, you know, in those organs, that can permeate the yoga world as well, right. and I, especially, you know, uh, for me, sort of. Ha- having been involved in the sort of um, the process of understanding what yoga therapy is and um, what it might do for us, there are ways in which even whole communities within the field of yoga, and I I would say yoga therapy is one, are trying to understand and legitimize a field and therefore testing protocols, say for back pain or for anxiety, becomes uh, something that you are drawn to do because it offers that stamp of legitimacy that you know the medical community can look at. Um, and so understanding where we are at this point in time, I think, uh, can be helpful because in truth, we know that it's not the poses that we do, right? I, I think it's not the particular forms of breath work that we do. Um, it may, in fact, be the quality of awareness and attention that we bring to the practice, um, which, which you could think of as interoceptive awareness or, um, or mindfulness, you could say, or mindfulness of the body. And, um, and then I think, gosh, it opens up a door to even look at the way that modern language in yoga, the language of instructions, the language of assisting, um, the language of sort of understanding where each pose might fit or what it might do for us are are then sort of derived from this 
um, you know, framework that has prescriptive qualities embedded in it. Um, so yeah, I, I feel like I feel like there's so much there yeah. to talk about. How many days do we have? <laughs> exactly. <laughs> Um, so you mentioned interoceptive awareness, and I wanted to actually talk to you about this um, this ca- distinction between interoceptive versus proprioceptive awareness. Um, so can you unpack that a little bit for us? What are, What is the difference between these two? Sure. And, you know, one thing I'll say um, as a means of creating context is that they're often spoken about as very distinct from one another. Mm-hmm. And in fact, um, they they appear, I think science is helping us to understand that they have a relationship and also an overlap. Yeah. Um, so maybe I'll just describe exteroceptive awareness okay. um, as a means of locating that. And, you know, I, I'll talk about this sometimes as the continuum of embodiment, um, where we might be locating at certain points in that very overlapping continuum, or you could think of it as a round, um, a shape of round. But... Um, uh, proprioception, uh, or rather um, exteroception, is the sort of attention we place onto the things around us. Mm. So it's kind of our visual acuity. Sometimes it's hearing sound, it's scanning our environment, noticing other people, um, just paying attention to what's happening outside of us, yeah. um, outside of our bodies, outside of our ourselves. Um, and it's useful, right? So it, it is important for us to be able to do that in order to survive, but also in order to relate to our environment. And then we have proprioceptive awareness, which is, um, you can think of that as an awareness of where uh, our body is located in space. Mm-hmm. And also, like I would expand that to how much space we take up um, versus other people and even um, what we're telegraphing through our bodies, what we're actually communicating that might be very different than what we're consciously aware of. Um, so, so that's how I might kind of creatively describe proprioception. Um, and then interoception has, wow, there's just, it's such a huge and rich field. But one of the ways you could think about that is to think about what's happening on the inside the body. So. Mm-hmm. What am I feeling inside? And um, but you could also think of it as an action, like um, uh, a cultivation of mindful awareness of sensation as sensation changes from one moment to the next. Um, and, and then I often um, like to use a definition that um, has been developed in the sort of neuroscience of interoception, which looks at um, interoception as the capacity to receive, and then also appraise, and then respond to um, sensations or signals that are happening in the body. And that also is a really rich one because it sort of evokes the idea that how we do those three things, how we receive signals, how we appraise or understand them, and how we respond to them um, impacts our emotional health and even our physiology as well. Mm. Um, and interoception can include um, breathing and also air hunger. It includes our skin response, which was formerly thought to be only proprioception. Um, interoception includes awareness of our heart rate, uh, hunger and, and fullness, 
um, abdominal distension and fullness and also, you know, bladder fullness. It includes warmth and coolness and also muscular activity, even soreness. Um, and then sensual touch and also sexual touch. Mm. So it's a pretty rich, rich field um, in Slido. So is interoceptive awareness, is, is it, uh, does it have a kind of agent-like quality? In other words, you know, for example, that we have these studies of, well, not super ancient yogis, but yogis who were able to regulate their heart rate um, um, via forms of meditation. So does interoception, is it just a sort of a, a kind of observing capacity or does it actually have the, the capacity to change, you know, inner states? Mm, okay, so that is a wonderful question. <laughs> that, <laughs> that the answer. Let me see if I can simplify that answer. Um, if you if you consider for a moment that we our our brains and our minds, but particularly the brain, has to automate sensation and automate perception quite a bit of the time. Mm -hmm. um, and this is called the predictive coding model. So in regard to the body, our brain uses past sensory experiences and kind of um, puts them in a, a kind of a, a sensory map. And it uses um, past experiences to predict future sensations and experiences. Mm -hmm. So you could think of that as like a, a self-fulfilling body prophecy. Wow. And then things get really interesting when there's a sensation that differs from the prediction that's being made by the brain. So there's a prediction error. And then the way that error is resolved brings into question the agency that you mentioned and also has some relation to resilience. So, for example, um, there can be active inference which means an attempt to change the sensation that's happening. So say, for example, you know, I'm here in the, in the Cambridge, Massachusetts area, it's cold and rainy. If it were suddenly to be 90 degrees, you know, in the room as we're speaking, that would be a prediction error because I'm kind of in that space of being just a little bit cold. Um, I can put on a coat to make that sensation go away so I can do that consciously and then I can also, um, my brain can regulate body temperature. So maybe even, um, you know, uh, homeostatically producing a little bit more heat um, to sort of change my state. And I may not be aware of that happening at all. But that's called active inference. And it's considered to be a kind of, I think this term is somewhat problematic, but a top-down strategy where we're sort of regulate. I think outside in might might work better, but we're regulating a bodily state from the outside and we're kind of imposing another order on it. And when we think about resilience, we might kind of consider that to be a stress reduction strategy. So there's like an error. I want to make that error go away. So either it's going to happen automatically or I'm going to try to change what's happening. You can also have perceptual inference, and that is a, a really different strategy that integrates the discomfort or the current sensation into the map and literally expands the brain's body map. Mm. 
Mm. And that's often called the bottom-up strategy. I like to use the term inside-out strategy. And that's more of a stress-resilient strategy where we get better at navigating a wider range of sensations. Um, you know, if you've ever felt like, well, I would feel better or less unhappy if only my partner would change his behavior or her behavior, their behavior, um, or I'm fine in, in this experience, but if you change that, you know, that's really what the problem is. Mm -hmm. And so wanting our environment to, to sort of um, mold itself, occur, yeah. yeah, mold itself in our likeness. And then, so I think um, getting back to your initial question about act actively using intention to change a bodily state, um, I, I, it's not considered to be part of interoception, but I think it can could be considered part of contemplative practice, but within this larger context of, you know, are we simply doing something to our bodies and they are passively receiving it, or are we just expanding into a wider um, range of sensations? And there's some interesting research being done um, with cold immersion um, as, as a means of sort of um, regulating pain and emotion. Um, and the Wim Hof, who's also known as the Iceman, uh, is, a, is a, 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 a kind of superhuman record-breaking, but also kind of humanitarian, um, who has um, really wanted to utilize breathing techniques, yoga, and uh, cold immersion as a means of helping build emotional balance. And I think there's there's agency involved there. So that's that's kind of um, that's a really rich rich question. So I want to go back to something that you mentioned because uh, I love this um, idea of you know expanding the brain's body map, which um, you know seems to connect to this very hot topic now, neuroplasticity, which we'll be focusing on next quarter with our content um, and the way it connects to contemplative practice. So I want to hear a little bit about that, but I really like that idea of expanding the body map because it feels like a, a place where, um, you know, all of this kind of more scientific um, language research around um, contemplative practice can start to connect with, you know, some of the the philosophical teachings of the tradition, which essentially, you know, argue for or posit this interconnectedness. So it's almost as if there's, you know, the the promise or the potential for um, expanding the body map in such a way that the body map can uh, include other people, right? So there's this sense that. Um, um, uh, this this kind of felt division between myself and the world, or myself and other people, can start to sort of dissolve in 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 the face of this expanding body map that you know one in in some aspects of the tradition or history might be called a kind of mystical experience. Even um, so, I'm wondering what you know what your thoughts are on the way in which um, neuroplasticity um, connects to this work, and then maybe this is. You know, without we don't have to have the mystical conversation, but I feel like that's even expanding the brain's body map could also then segue into the discussion of social justice, which we're kind of moving into. So anyway, I know that's a lot, <laughs> but um, yeah. what are your thoughts on that? <laughs> I might ask you at certain points to kind of refresh. Sure. <laughs> because, yeah, it contains your question. Um, it's so beautiful. Yeah, it contains so much. So um, so one of the things that, that we could talk about is how does 
this idea of expanding both our range of sensation and then um, um, not just of movement, but interoceptively, our capacity to tolerate, say, for example, shame or to tolerate feelings of anger or, or guilt or lack of predictability or memories and things like that. So um, I'll, I'll expand interoception there. And, you know, um, how does that relate to neuroplasticity? I sort of, that's one of the things I read, read you asking. And yeah. neuroplasticity is this really wonderful concept because it used to be that we thought that sort of past the age of 14, it was all downhill, that our brains don't change and they just sort of decay and decline all the way up to the moment of death. And um, I, I think it really was a kind of revolutionary moment to discover, to prove, and prove again this concept of neuroplasticity, which means that um, our brains can change. We can change this, the size of our cells, the shape of our cells, um, which is pretty cool. And you know, one of the really exciting areas in neuroscience right now looks at um, the way cells, groups of cells, communicate with one another. And then this kind of um, whole brain connectome studies that look at you know the entire brain and the way that it's functioning. And um, so, to one way to understand how the body plays a role in transformation is to consider that both the body, well, in two ways, both with internal sensation changing literally from one moment to the next. And then if we take connective tissue, um, which I think is um, really known as an organ of interoception, that too is always moving mm. um, in what the, the researcher Jean-Claude Gimberto calls an intelligent chaos. Mm. So the question becomes like, what creates change and how how might that actually transform us? And if you think of kind of it, it entering the body, entering this field of sensation as um, entering this kind of chaotic, um, galactic internal landscape with um, all kinds of things happening, um, we, we never know what we're going to find. There's always a sense of being really unprepared, mm -hmm. even if we're using our conceptual mind to enter the body. And then over time, what happens is that we become more and more comfortable with sensations as they're occurring with kind of this intelligent chaos of the body. And that, um, that makes the field of the body, even in its, its shifting uncertainties, start to feel more like home to us. Um, and we develop a, a kind of visceral resilience. And the, the really exciting um, contributions from neuroscience show that this visceral resilience really generalizes up to the brain where it translates into emotional resilience. And that means that paying attention to attending to meditating in this changing field of the body becomes a training ground in contemplative practice. Um, and to me, if we're, if we're looking at that on a micro level, we can say that um, the idea that we have to change our mind in order to heal the brain and body, which is um, you know, one element of neuroplasticity, could be expanded into what 
the pain researcher Lorimer Mosley calls bioplasticity and Robert Schleip calls fascioplasticity. Mm. But this really cool sort of um, opening for us to change our body um, by cultivating this resilience and other things as well. And that changes our mind and brain. Um, so I think I only got one of your. No, one yeah, of... I asked too much at this. I do that sometimes. <laughs> I Pack love it all it. in. Um, I love what you're saying. I mean, it's so beautiful. This uh, I, I, I'd never heard intelligent chaos before as a concept, but it really is very uh, it's such a beautiful idea. And then and then, you know, you uh, the gesture of kind of including bioplasticity and fascioplasticity it seems to be kind of in line with our earlier gesture of avoiding the reduction of all of this stuff to just brain as if like, you know, again, you know, reifying that sort of brain versus body thing. Whereas you're really talking about a kind of, it seems it's, it's a more holistic way of, of looking at this kind of truth of plasticity, you know, broadly conceived by, you know, talking about not only neuroplasticity, but bioplasticity, fascial plasticity. So it's just beautiful. Um, so, you know, now as a way of segueing into the kind of the social justice conversation, which is a, a lot of the work that you're doing now, um, which I want to talk a little bit about. So, um, you know, just as in, in the spirit of segueing nicely, like how does this work that you've done, I mean, presumably like we can't have a sustainable social transformation without, you know, emotionally balanced people. Um, so how do you see this kind of previous work that you've been doing on emotional health and balance with, um, you know, the work that you're doing now in social justice work? Mm-hmm. Okay. Yeah. Um, and, and I think you'd, you'd asked also about yoga philosophy. And yes. so to kind of um, tie those threads together, if that's possible, is to really look at how um, the body is really a ground for intelligence and wisdom and knowing. And one of the, the sort of powerful parts of like, why the body? Why is the body, like why visceral resilience? And I think part of the power of the body is that it, it becomes both uh, object, you know, um, that's experiencing the world and subject um, that is viewing, or you could say seen and seer, if we, if we want to tie that to the sutras. And that it's the dance between those and finding facility in switching back and forth between them is, is a kind of perspective taking that is itself transformative to us. Yeah. I think where that um, starts to connect to social justice is that I think in, in my view, which can be seen as maybe a little radical, you know, anxiety and depression and chronic pain and addictions are not... Um, let me say it more nicely, are not just, I'll put that word in there, genetic and biochemical, right. but they are, I, I really think the research is pointing to them as diseases of disembodiment. And mm. they relate very much to anomalies in interoception. And also in this part of the brain we mentioned before, this default mode network that does a lot of selfing mm. and a lot of othering of other people. And so um, a, a lot of, and let's just take implicit bias. So we'll go from the perspective of, I think you could say the colonizer perspective, yeah. even though I'll acknowledge that there's a lot more to that. Um, but if we take that perspective of, of really, um, understanding implicit bias as a bias toward people that we are determining to be, um, not us mm-hmm. or a bias toward people that we feel that are us and, um, 
you know, that's our in-group bias, and then a bias against those that we have decided are part of the out-group, and that the brain seems to make those choices automatically for some people. They get sort of stuck into some scars, and I think that's part of part of our educational system, part of, you know, uh, interpersonal and systemic uh, bias and oppression as well. Um, and, and so you could think of this also as an immune decision um, in much the same way that a food we eat might be seen as being not us or a part of our body we deny as being not us. That is an inflammatory response. Mm. Um, and I, we have what you could think of as a social immune system in which um, deciding that whole groups of people are not us, that they're not the same body, that they um, are not part of our group is almost like a social uh, inflammatory response. And so, wow, you know, awesome. yeah, it's, I think it's exciting. And we're, these aren't conceptual uh, issues, right? They are also felt in our bodies. So I think that only using conceptual insight to resolve issues of systemic oppression is, um, is really an impossible endeavor in part because, and I, I think this connects, you know, white privilege and other forms of privilege, you know, um, systemic oppression, white supremacy are all, um, forms of, you know, really acute disembodiment mm. and a centering of our own experience, you know, um, to the exclusion of others. And so we, we, the desire to be a good person or in the yoga world to be a good yogi, to have good intentions, maybe um, irrespective of their impact, are, um, it's like a, a huge psychological defense structure that makes it hard to see beyond that. But I feel that we can actually feel in our bodies and learn to kind of listen on that level to things that the conscious mind doesn't really want to see. Mm. Um, there's I, some, oh. sorry, I just want to, yeah, I just wanted to touch on that because I think what you're saying is so profound, this association with disembodiment, um, to, uh, like very rigid forms of selfing, because I think it almost runs counter to kind of the social, presumption, which is that, you know, if I have a very strong sense of self, then I'm embodied in some way, right? That I'm, I, <clears throat> I understand who I am and where I am in the world. Whereas what you're saying is really kind of counter to that, that actually it's disembodied to, to conceive of oneself in this sort of like very dis deeply, um, contrasted, um, form of self that then, you know, basically coheres itself in contrast to other people or in in opposition to other people. And I think that's such an important idea, like a new way of thinking about embodiment that is inclusive. Yes, inclusive. And again, you know, can find the places that we are centering self and othering others. Um, and and actually that it is essential to our health to be able to do that. Um, right. I, I think we have these um, defenses against community that are reinforced by social media, yeah. even to the degree that they're, they, um, you know, I've seen people say in their own feed things that are really problematic where someone from a different field might say like, gosh, do you, do you realize that you're saying that's a little messed up, but everyone in their feed is saying, you are so amazing. You're so wonderful. 
So the idea that the world is sort of created in our own likeness is a perpetuation of privilege. I mean, that's can you give an example of what of what you're just talking about of of someone saying I'm not I I hear what you're saying but I wanted to maybe have a couple examples. Oh, I I just saw one I think the other day. Um, you know what I think one one thing that I've seen for example is people saying you know I went through trauma and um, yoga healed me and so now I am healed <laughs> and a, a lot of people will say. Um, you know, you're so amazing. You're such a, you know, goddess or go- or whatever it is. You're so inspiring um, without necessarily going beneath that statement to sort of look at, well, let's take a critical look at what that just said mm-hmm. and what the implications are. Um, I think it's, re- you know, and, and so listening to that little, that like, oh, that happens in our body when we see a statement like that and then understand, oh, it's not really popular to speak out with this person, but I'm going to do that anyway. And I think there are sort of myriad ways in which we, we, you know, social media feeds are created to admire things that are in our own likeness and to just to reinforce that tendency to divide between self and non-self and using the body. I think we've talked about the body as subject and the body as object. But we could also consider the body as methodology, and in particular, healing methodology and healing in, in regard to social justice. Mm. Um, uh, there are some really interesting studies of embodiment that look at body ownership, and body ownership is the the sense we have that our body belongs to us. Right. And that's a huge topic right now, particularly in issues of ethnicity and gender issues of race. Um, And uh, these studies, uh, a lot of them are done out of Monosecuris's lab in London. And they're looking at, I think this is really amazing, illusions where you can create body illusions that in particular, the rubber hand illusion or infacement studies, which uh, make you believe that you have the face of somebody else. And in just a couple of minutes, uh, you can convince someone using combined simultaneous visual and tactile stimulation that that a rubber hand is part of their own hand. That sounds like just maybe a cool trick of embodiment or disembodiment, but where some of the exciting, there's two areas of research that I think will, um, you'll, you'll like your listeners will too. And the first is um, researchers looking at, well, what happens in the disembodied part? So if I put a rubber hand on the table next to your right hand and your left hand is out of the picture, it's behind you somewhere, and I stroke the rubber hand and um, your hand with a, a little paintbrush at the same tempo in the same sort of spot, within a minute or two, your brain is going to take ownership of that rubber hand. But what happens in the hand um, that is out of the picture? Because in order to um, adopt a foreign object as part of our body, we also have to disown the part that was there before. And what they've found, um, and and this is pretty consistent now across many studies, is that there um, is a drop in temperature, histamines are released, and movement, which you can think of as both um, proprioception and our sense of agency in our bodies, 
decreases, but not throughout the entire body through the disowned part. And so you could say that not being in our bodies is actually an inflammatory state. Mm. And we could wonder, well, what happens when we're not in our bodies most of the time when we're really dissociating? Um, I think the, the, the second really exciting group of studies is um, looking at how, um, how we actually need a strong sense of body ownership. We need to feel like our body belongs to us to have the capacity to make decisions around our body, to feel safe in our body. But then it also needs to be somewhat fluid mm -hmm. toward people in our outgroup. So in this same lab in London, uh, one of the, the my favorite studies um, took um, a group of people that had already tested positive for implicit bias. Um, so they were a group of white people that had bias um, to, uh, against um, people of color. And they set them in front of a mirror and um, facing them in the mirror was a person of color who was having their cheek stroked by a Q-tip at the same place, in the same tempo as the white person, the subject of the study, was having their cheek stroked. And within a couple of minutes, they felt themselves to be inside or underneath the skin of the person in the mirror, the person of color. And what they found was that in that short sort of two minute span of time, um, being able to adopt um, or sort of bring or expand, you could say, what you consider your in-group to be actually resulted in a reduction in bias. Um, and there have been many wow. studies using body ownership just to take perspective we could say well like why why do we have to like why is it that people of privilege really have such a narrow map of what is considered me and what's and such a wide range of what's not me yeah. and i think that's part part of part of what we want to make inquiry into but but really looking at um privilege as a disembodied state and um, I, I think if, if you read a lot of writers of color, like uh, Ta-Nehisi Coates talks about forced disembodiment mm. as an act of terrorism. And so I, I feel that where being embodied, where practicing interoceptive practices, renewing body ownership, our sense of agency, and even the way we resonate with other, other bodies is a way of kind of... Um, combating the fact that forced disembodiment is a primary mechanism by which um, dominant cultures systematically and systemically oppress people of color, um, uh, you know, people of certain genders, vulnerable bodies, you know, bodies with disabilities, um, non-heteronormative gendered bodies, non-binary bodies, um, and really looking at... Um, yeah, their embodiment as a means of reducing systemic oppression and then also as, as a means of resistance for people that have endured oppression. Mm. Wow, you've said so many amazing things um, there. And one of the things that I love that you said um, is you referred to it um, with these studies as these individuals had tested positive for implicit bias, which um, just kind of, you know, provokes this idea of... Uh, 
implicit bias being kind of a disorder, which, you know, if maybe if um, a couple of things, like if, if we did look at it that way, then we could sort of see, okay, well, there are forms of treatment that can be, you know, prescribed to the, you know, reduce this implicit bias and increase, um, you know, um, or decrease selfing and othering. Um, but also I felt like it, it's an important thing to sort of see for those who are more sensitive to not being implicitly biased because I feel like there's, you know, on the liberal side of things, there's a kind of, there's the othering of those who are biased, right? There's the kind of, um, um, it's like these, these people are just haters and, and evil and we must, you know, smite them out in some way. Whereas um, I, I, I just think it's an interesting way to look at it to see um, testing positive for implicit bias as if, you know, implicit bias is a kind of disorder. Um, but the, the thing that you said about, you know, I want to go back to body ownership because it seems to bring up kind of, and you've touched on this a little bit, but, um, you know, in the same way that, um, like for example, in, in Ayurveda, there is a kind of, um, teachings around not, you know, disentangling oneself from ownership of certain diseases, right? So, um, so like, for example, I am not my depression, I am not my anxiety is oftentimes um, proposed as being a way of kind of liberating oneself of, of over identification with with a certain kind of disease or recognizing um, that you have the power to not be fully identified with that. So and then of course, so there, there are moments when maybe it would be appropriate not to own our bodies in this kind of way. But then, of course, if we take that to an extreme conclusion or we take that to we just sort of take that as an absolute, then we run into issues like, for example, with reproductive rights where where, you know, we don't want <laughs> uh, we do want there to be body ownership and, and that to be honored that, you know, that we own our bodies and and and, and therefore, you know, the, the government can't sort of intervene. Um, so anyway, it just I, I just sort of the idea of body ownership brought up a lot for me in this in this kind of way. So I'm wondering if you have any thoughts on that, you know, um, uh, when this, you know, when this idea is really uh, important and operative and when, you know, we might want to um, not take as much body ownership. Yeah. Oh, what a great question. I, you know, one thing I would say is that body ownership is very distinct and different from this idea of I am depressed or I even right. I am a survivor or, um, you know, I, I can say that myself having having gone through um, sexual assault. But I would say, you know, so the our idea of identifying it, that you're bringing up, it's like I am my depression, that to me is more identifying with an idea rather yeah. than identifying with the bodily kind of resonance of that idea. I see. So okay. I think it's really important for us to sort of distinguish yes and i think even in in the book although it's been a long time um you know i talk about how do we generate experiences of not depression in the body or not anxiety in the body because it's the appraisal system that's saying oh i just have that all the time therefore that is me yeah. um so your point is really important i think in that sense um and and then body ownership as being this sense that you could even think of it as our self to body relationship. Mm -hmm. And I, I, I'm sure that you will have some readers that are wondering, well, Bo is talking about this as though it's a dualistic issue. And 
we're all embodied anyway. Um, and I've heard people say that before, and I kind of see what they're saying. Like, of course I'm embodied. I have a body. We're all embodied. I To say that in some ways, I think um, I, I just was teaching in Berlin, and this came up, um, where someone said, like, I, I don't even want to consider the question, am I in my body or not? Of course I'm in my body. And then um, it was a it was a, a a male of privilege, I should say. And then a bunch of people raised their hands and said, "Well, no, actually, you know, um, for people that have suffered any form of trauma, uh, including racial violence and police violence and systemic oppression and um, being gendered and being othered, um, it isn't a given. Like uh, the bodies don't always uh, are not always seen." in a societal way is belonging to us and and we don't have the freedom for example to move or to take our hands out of our pockets um and understanding privilege and the way we take up space and by contrast um you know oppression and the way that limits our sense of agency in our bodies our ability to bodies um, the sense that our bodies belong to us, certainly, you know, rituals that surround the body, like moving the body and music and dance and things like that. Um, so I think in some ways the identifications are in the mind, but really looking at how many forms of embodiment. And I would I would put that on a continuum from things we do with our body to connecting with nature sort of in a larger sense of as as part of the body of which we are a part, our earth body, um, even things like embodied conflict resolution. So, um, you know, making that important as well. That to me is a way of kind of focusing on methodology rather than identification as subject, right? I am this or I am that, but it's actually just a state of being and kind of um, being with, I think that's important. Um, yeah, to, to, and to really kind of say, you know, I think to some extent we all, you know, if we have a body, we actually struggle with inhabiting our body in yeah. this society. Um, so I, I don't, I think the concept is inherently healing and that dualism is coming, you know, from the outside kind of visited upon us, if that makes sense. Yeah. Um, and, and yet, you know, what you're also speaking to in such a wise way is that our sense of body ownership, if it's too strong, we lose a sense of the way we resonate with others' bodies. And it is almost like it is almost like an autoimmune disease socially where everything is not us, you know. Yeah. So every difference, every gendered difference, you know, every non-binary body or every body that's different than my body becomes other. Yeah. Um, and and so we actually do, I think, do want more resonance with others' bodies hmm. um, and uh, a greater sense that we're part of one body. And you're bringing up also, I think you alluded to, um, something that kind of is under the surface a little bit in the modern yoga world. And that's the idea like, well, this is yoga. It's about unity. We're all about unity. Yes, you know, that is conceptually true. But, um, you know, if we look at the issue, not just of cultural appropriation, but the way bodies are represented in yoga and, you know, which bodies have a, the right or the freedom to practice and where, how, um, 
resources get allocated to certain bodies, um, then um, we also start to self-examine, like, okay, there is a tendency for us to to say, oh, look at that person over there is so intolerant or so racist. And I think that's also a defense, um, sometimes called, you know, white exceptionalism or virtue signaling, where it's kind of like, oh, look at how bad that person is. Look at how good I am. Again, getting, getting back to that goodness. And I think the body is a great way, a great medium for dropping in and saying, well, actually, maybe not. You know, maybe we're not as good as we think we are, and maybe that's really important as a means of spiritual growth, really, to understand that, um, you know, this concept of privilege that hasn't been explored very much, it's not just about activism, you know, without internal work. And I think where embodiment can be really revolutionary is that kind of taking us from what sometimes can be a more adolescent sense of social justice that yeah. in in white communities has so much outrage and righteousness and um you know selfing in it um and actually kind of deconstruct that a little bit and to say well actually let's understand and i think there's a psychology and a biology in our defensive structures that when it comes to um, social equity can be really helpful um, in kind of understanding what we're really combating and that it's not just the good people against the world, but that, you know, goodness itself and the centering of our own our own sense of what's right. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I love that. It's, it's a very kind of nuanced way of looking at it. And I'm glad you mentioned the the unity thing, because that's something that I, I like to talk about, because it is sort of, you know, to use this very common, maybe overused phrase, spiritual bypassing to, you know, mm. to, to, to kind of assume that since you have the concept of unity, that that means that you're sort of you know, affective structure is conducive to that, you know, concept, or, you know, maybe another way of thinking about it would be that, you know, you can't have unity without diversity. So, you know, they sort of imply one another and the sort of healthy relationships of that diversity is really what counts for that, you know, if if unity is to count for anything, it has to sort of, in some way reflect that. And so it's really beautiful. Um, you know, uh, so we're sort of entering the end of our discussion. It's been really beautiful talking to you, Bo. So I wanted to hear maybe if you had any, uh, other thoughts on, you know, this topic of social justice and, and, and maybe you want to talk specifically about some of the work that you're doing, um, uh, you know, in this area. Sure. Um, yeah, so I, I, I really do feel that the work that we've been talking about just moments ago, this this sense of understanding, you know, how there is, you know, you, you you said, you didn't use this phrase, but you sort of implied this idea of colorblindness or, you know, um, this idea of everyone is equal and how destructive that can be in the field. And I, I loved the phrase unity in diversity. It's actually how my second family is Baha'i and that's a, that actually is a, a Baha'i uh, catchphrase that has always been, yeah, really, really important to understand that. And then to really begin to examine what we've done with yoga in the West, who holds power. And I'm, I'm including myself in that examination, 
how have we wielded power? Um, how have we sort of, how, how can yoga, how has it been a recapitulation mm-hmm. of colonial structures? Um, you know, it, it, that have created a, a yet another situation in which resources and opportunities are located in, in the very few people with authority. Um, and, and I see this a lot, just even in the way um, people might be associated even with um, certain areas of expertise, like mine might be emotional balance, but, oh, I shouldn't, I shouldn't veer off into another area or someone else's might be trauma. And, and, you know, it's very curious to me how, how the patterns that we've been engaging in around yoga and some of the dialogues, I think we're going to have some, some difficult dialogues ahead. Um, one of the things I, I have done for a couple of years now is to begin to teach on um, issues of white privilege in yoga and how they're manifested through language and through patterns of how even even how postures are taught right. and privileged and alignment is sometimes highlighted and um, people are shaped by instruction um, and starting to pull some of that apart. We have a supervision group um, following a couple of the workshops I did um, in London and New York this year, and that group is um, making its way together through some of this. So I, I do feel like just reading on one's own is not enough because we're blind to the areas in which we are complicit um, or maybe do have privilege. It's very, very hard to expand uh, the our, you called it the body map, and I love thinking about that as a social body map yeah. um, of what I consider me. You know, it's very, it's it's usually me centered. Um, and and then with a colleague of mine, Chris Manjapra, who is also a yoga teacher, and um, it is um, the head of the Department of Colonialism, Race, and Diaspora mm-hmm. um, at Tufts University. We've been teaching a course this fall to college students. Um, on um, colonialism, the body, and social justice, Amazing. using the body, um, not just as the object of study, but subject and methodology directly in the classroom. So mm. that has been such a such an incredibly rewarding experience wow. um, in, and instructive. And so I think for me, um, that has been important. And then looking at connective tissue as a decolonizing practice um, and beginning to kind of partner with other people that um, are in different disciplines. So I think um, that for me is always good food and nourishment to um, have cross-pollinization and interdisciplinary, um, you know, creative dialogues and collaboration. Um, and we're also looking at, um, um, together with uh, Norm part of a study right now um, exploring interoception as a mediating uh, factor in in depression and looking at both movement-based practice and interoceptive practices. So those are, those are some of the places I'm engaging. And then, of course, I think doing a lot of my own work and receiving a lot of supervision around these areas um, so that I'm not recapitulating the very patterns that I'm working to um, right you know, hydrate and expand. 
Wow. Well, you're doing such important and beautiful work, Bo. Thank you so much for for chatting with me. And to close, I just wanted to ask if you wanted to share maybe how people could, um, you know, get connected with you or learn more about any offerings that you have coming up. Sure. Well, first, thank you for having me. Uh, you, you are the only person to persuade me out of my writing cave right now um, because I love your work so much. Um, And so to some extent, I'm, I'm working on this next book pretty hard this year, but, and so we don't even have our schedule finalized, but if you go to bowforbes.com, you will see um, there will be a workshop schedule that we hope to have up by the end of the year. Um, I, I am most likely going to be in London again in 2019 and then we have um, some uh, Canadian journeys in there and local U.S. ones. And, um, yeah, so uh, you can also find me on uh, Instagram at Beau Forbes Yoga and also on Facebook, although um, I have been – my writing has been sort of pretty focused internally. I'm less, much less regular on social media recently um but i'm i'm always happy to dialogue and we're always putting out new videos on youtube so those are free of charge on our youtube channel and that's but bo- uh you can find on youtube just by searching bo yeah. Forbes yoga yes it's so funny i don't even know the name of the channel anymore <laughs> it's been so long um but yes you can search bo forbes and um and find that find that there yeah we uh, we do have um we also have online courses, and um, the one on social justice is closed right now okay. um, while we're in the supervision group, but um, we'll be doing that in association with our three days this year. And then we have another one called Yoga, Mindfulness, Neuroscience, and the Body, and that one's really fun looking at the belly brain or enteric nervous system, our our immune system, our um, default mode network, interoception self-compassion. Um, and then we have a shorter course on yoga for emotional balance. Uh, so those are the best ways to interact and engage for now. And your, and your website is bowforbes.com. Excellent. All right. Well, it's been such a pleasure chatting with you, Bo. Thanks so much. Thank you for having me. I really appreciate the work that you're doing. Thank you.